Welcome to the Kennedy Report. I'm Kennedy Hall. This is our third video in our series on building up men for the church. In our last episode, we spoke of the vice of effeminacy and its effect on men and as a result on our church and our society. In that video, we talked about how Our Lady of Fatima had expressed to us that the sins of the flesh were the primary reason that souls were going to hell, especially over the last century. And one of the main reasons for that is the vice of effeminacy. Just a little summary of what we had talked about is it's a reluctance to suffer due to an attachment to pleasure. So we went over that. So we're not going to go over, we're not going to re-diagnose the problem. We've already done that. So if you've missed that episode, let me take a minute and go back and watch that for the context for this one. But in this one, we're going to talk about how can we overcome this? We've done the negative thing. We've looked at the problem. But this series is about building up men, not tearing them down, which our culture tends to do on a daily basis. So, how do we overcome the vice of effeminacy? Well, think for a moment what the children at Fatima did to pray and do penance for the poor souls in purgatory and for others. They did little things like putting pebbles in their shoes. Now, you might be thinking, what does that have to do with building virtue and overcoming effeminacy? Well, in our last episode, what we spoke about was that the road to an effeminate, vicious habit is little things that we give into along the way, losing our temper frequently, overindulging in food and drink frequently, etc. So a way that we counteract those little habits is we take on little sustainable, practical habits that can help us overcome these vices. There is a time and a place for drastic measures that have to be taken, our Lord does say, you know, if one of your members of your body causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to enter the kingdom of heaven missing a limb than it is to go to the king or the anti-kingdom of hell, I guess, fully intact. And those things we have to keep into account. But as far as building virtue, it's something that we have to do in a habitual fashion. And we talked about in our last video of virtue ethics is about building habits, etc. So these small acts of embracing suffering are going to be key and building virtue to give us a defense against the larger vices of feminacy that come our way. Our culture inundates us with temptations as men. It inundates everybody, men and women, but here as we're focusing on men, we think about the way that Hollywood portrays how we're supposed to act. We think about the sexual temptations. We think about um, the ways that men are expected to act, etc. It is very difficult to be a virtuous, pious Christian man in today's society without encountering a lot of resistance. In fact, our society has become so anti-Christian in so many ways that even just suggesting, and this is something I've realized in releasing my recent book, one of the things I spoke about, which we'll get into in a little bit, I spoke about how it wasn't advisable for men to go to health clubs if they could find another option to work out just because of the immodesty and the vanity, etc. People were actually mad at me about that, that I suggested that men should try not to spend so much time around you know, other immodestly dressed men and women and you know, save their chastity for their wives. What a crazy idea. But that's where our culture has gotten to. So, the cure for any vice, very often, is to find the root cause of behavior. So, for example, lust is obviously a vice that has to do with primarily sexual activity. But it's actually more than that. It's a sin of the flesh, which means that other sinful activity of the body contributes to that habitual mentality. This is why we can say things like, 
he has bloodlust or he has a lust for money. In fact, if you actually look through what the church fathers say when they interpret what happened in the Garden of Eden, they talk about the various sins that Adam and Eve had committed when they took the fruit. And one of them is actually a sin of lust. The reason for that is it was a very attractive and tempting reality. And both of them knew that what would happen if they took from it would be a sinful, a mortally sinful action. They knew this because of their infused knowledge that they had from being created in a state of perfection. And as a result, it was actually a sin of lust because they, they went against what they knew was God's law for a temporary, pleasurable, physical sin that they took on instead. So that's something to remember. So this is deep in our human nature, in our fallen human nature, I should say. So, for example, it's not enough for a man to say, uh, you know, if he has a lust problem, oh, he's just going to work on purity. You know, I've heard this before working with people in, in various prayer ministries and things. Yeah, that's a good start, but the habits of this man need to change in order for him to become successful. So he can't ward off, for example, you know, a lustful addiction to evil images, pornography, etc. He's not going to be able to get that out of his life successfully if in all of his other habits he has other addictions and other obsessions. Okay. So for example, if a young man is struggling, uh, let's say a high school age man or a teenage guy, He's struggling with these lustful problems. Well, okay, good. Surgically remove all of those problems from your life. You know, get filters on your computer, take away the smartphone, do what you have to do. However, you can't then just say, go play as many, as many video games as you like. Because that's still him seeking a constant pleasure drip to distract himself from having to be alone with his conscience. Okay? In a similar fashion, if a grown man, is suffering from a similar type of addiction. Okay, great. Like I said, get rid of the evil images, take surgical steps. But it's not enough to say that and then say, well, he's still got a gambling habit. That's not a problem. It's still going to be a problem because he's still seeking that same type of pleasure-releasing behavior you know, through an addiction. So we've got to go to the root. And we've got to mortify the flesh and go right to the, the root of the problem with these sensory pleasures. And if we do that then we're going to find more success in building virtue to overcome effeminacy. So, that's sort of the abstract. But what are some concrete steps? It's one thing to talk about theological ideas. It's one thing to talk about spiritual ideas. But we have to have concrete steps because we live in the real world and all men live in different walks of life and we need to have practical steps that no matter rich or poor, no, no matter what station in life, we can implement these things and we can become more virtuous to better serve our wives our children, our families, and ultimately our church and our God. So, what are these steps? Well, I'm going to go over just a few here. The first one is fasting. Now, I don't just mean fasting from the internet. How many times has have my fellow Catholics, if they still find themselves in a Novus Ordo situation, every year at Lent, Lent is coming up, and we usually, well, I go to a traditional Mass, thankfully now, but we usually hear this sort of, Oh, well, don't think of fasting as something so daunting. You know, you can fast from chocolate, or you can fast from being a complainer, or you can fast from saying bad things. And those are good things to fast from. You know, you shouldn't complain. There's nothing virtuous about that. And overindulgence in chocolate is not a good thing, and all these kinds of things. But fasting is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to hurt, okay? And our glorious Catholic tradition shows us just how we used to fast. In fact, up until 
essentially the Second Vatican Council, even with slight changes over time, Pope Leo XIII in the late 1800s, he did allow a little bit of meat and lard and things like that in the diets. That was to many Catholics going to the very Protestantized, industrialized, you know, North American world where Catholic fasting uh, seasons and stuff weren't respected. And he thought, okay, they've got long hours. They have to work in these industrial factories, etc. So we'll allow a little bit for sustenance. But these were very minor adjustments and they were very practical. But for most of the 2,000-year history of the church, fasting has consisted in some capacity of eating no meat for all of Lent, having only fish or cold-blooded animals, like turtles, etc., not eating till about 3 p.m. most days, uh, and various things, no butter, no dairy, etc., is very hard, very hard. And this is why our Lord says to us, some demons only come out by prayer and fasting. Now, I'm sure if you speak to a good exorcist, there's probably a, a real mystical and spiritual reason for that. But if I'm looking at it just from a practical and virtue reason, or sort of moral reason here, I know that when I'm fasting, that it forces you to be humble because you get weak. <laughs> when you're weak, you've got nothing left. And when you have nothing left, you can't rely on your own steam. You have to recognize that in order to succeed, in order to thrive, in order to be virtuous and heroic and do what's necessary, that you're going to have to rely on heavenly aid. So yes, there is a deeply spiritual aspect to fasting that Christ talks about when he talks about demons being exercised only from fasting, and that's necessary. And in fact, just as a side note here, if we think about the influx of the demonic into our society and unfortunately into parts of our church, well, no one's fasting. There's probably a relationship there. But in any case... Fasting is essential. As well, there are also health benefits. You know, that's a good thing. We need to be healthy as men to serve our families better. I have half a mind to one day write a book called something like, you know, the church is always right 100 years before people realize it, something like that. And now all the rage is these various diets, and they're fast from gluten, or intermittent fasting, or the, you know, the fast for this to heal your gut. And those things are all great, but they've all been happening for centuries and millennia in the church. And it's just called the traditional disciplines of fasting in the Catholic Church. And finally, with fasting, all the saints and mystics talk about better prayer. Okay, They always fast before they pray. And if you look at the traditional monasteries, they always begin their days waking up very early. They don't eat breakfast and things. And that's where the word breakfast comes from, because we break our fast. They don't eat breakfast. And they pray and go to Mass and do their work. And there's a few hours before they eat. They have the best prayer and the liturgical part of their day right then. And that's very important. Next thing, next practical step, is physical exertion. Now, I'm not using the term uh, specifically working out, because this will depend a lot on your state in life. Working out is great, but the modern sort of fitness culture is a temptation for lust and vanity. That's just the reality. I recommend, if you are going to work out, and I, I recommend it greatly if you can, build your own home gym, okay? It's not very expensive to do so. You know, you don't have to have all the fancy equipment. And until you get to the point where you can do 5,000 push-ups in a row without getting tired or something, you know, there's going to be a lot you can do at your house. In fact, if you look at the most physically fit soldiers in the world, the Marines and Navy SEALs, they still rely today on a large amount of calisthenic exercises, push-ups, sit-ups, chin-ups, etc., burpees, going for a run. There's a lot you can do at home. And the nice thing about working out at home is that you can build that into your daily schedule. 
You don't have to waste your time, you know, coming home from work and then spending another hour going to the gym, sitting in traffic, and all of a sudden this has become a two-hour affair. You can do this nice and early in the morning. You can do it after the kids go to bed. And that way you can actually put all of your primary responsibilities first and still find a way to better your virtue in a way that fits your family rhythms. It doesn't really matter what type of exercise that you do, but it needs to be hard. I myself, I grew up playing contact sports and things. I love lifting weights. Uh, but I tell you, you know, one of the hardest things on earth for me to do is a 10K run. So if you're somebody who likes to go for 10K runs and stuff, God bless you, and that's a wonderful thing. If your job is already physical, don't be silly, okay? Don't add in an immoderate amount that doesn't need to be there. If you are, you know, a hardworking farmer or something, you've got a very physical job and long hours, don't be silly. You've already got that. And thanks be to God you have a job that keeps you from sitting and rotting away like so many of us. And final point on physical exertion, I would say, try to begin your day with it, okay? The monks do this. They do their, a lot of their work in the early morning. They do their walks in the early morning. They fast in the early morning. There's a, there's a great, uh, there's a great wisdom in that, okay? Next point. Wake up earlier. At the off chance, you're already an early riser. You know, like I said, you're working on farm, operating on farming hours. You're already doing this. That's great. Simply put, though, waking up is hard. Therefore, waking up earlier, 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour depending. This is something that we can do with the intent of killing our need for unnecessary comfort. Our culture idolizes sleep. Yet it's remarkable how many of us have an issue with sleeping. Years ago, I heard about an app that you would actually download on your phone, you'd lay it on your bed, and apparently, this is, sounds insane to me, but you'd lay your phone on your bed beside you, and it would record your movements and put them in some sort of graph and tell you how good your sleep was. And I'm thinking, we're so progressive, we've progressed and we've evolved so much in this modern world that we need to have our phones tell us how to do such a basic human function as sleeping. So this idolization that we have of our sleep and our rest, it's not contributing to a more restful life. And if we look at how our ancestors lived, this insistence on always having eight hours and listen to your doctor if they tell you otherwise. I'm not saying don't go against your medical professionals. But this insistence on uh, a certain amount of hours and, and having certain things to make sure you sleep in certain ways, our ancestors, they would go with the seasons. In the summer, they slept less because it was sunlight longer. In the winters, they slept more. And they always found ways to get up early. And we don't read the history books and hear of this perpetually exhausted civilization. I think we can all afford to get up a little earlier and practice in a way Practicing getting up when our legs are stiff, it's practicing for the bodily resurrection that hopefully one day we'll all achieve. Now, one of the last things I'm going to talk about here is actually cold showers. Now, it doesn't have to be just cold showers, it could be an equivalent. You can read about some of the great saints and they actually talk about what maybe we would call today cold therapy. Okay, Today you'll actually hear psychologists and various health experts, they'll actually say that there's a great benefit to cold therapy for your health and that's great. But it's not really a wives' tale after all when you tell a young man to go take a cold shower. The wives' tale is the idea that if a young man is struggling with his virtue, just have one cold shower, you'll be fine. But the idea of implementing cold water into your life as something as part of your habits, there's actually a lot of wisdom in that. Simply put, hot showers are wonderful. They're one of the greatest pleasures that we have in the modern world. And if we decide to forego those, even for just those two or three minutes it takes to have your average shower every day, okay, even if it's just cool, just something unpleasant compared to what we're used to, 
That's going to be another example of us taking on something difficult, practicing so that we do not avoid suffering, that we embrace the suffering, and ultimately, we can embrace the cross. And I think that's, that about covers it for today. So just to recap here, the four practical steps that I've given are fasting, physical exertion, waking up early, and cold showers or an equivalent. In our next episode, we're going to talk about how St. Joseph is a perfect model for men to follow. So thanks for joining me on the Kennedy Report. I'm Kennedy Hall, and until next time, God bless.